Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. When you want to write and you feel like you want to write, then you can't help yourself and you keep writing, right? You just you just find yourself writing like a like a junkie. You got what can I write today? What I, so I was writing spec scripts, and spec scripts are the way the gateway into getting the job. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I hope you're having a great week. I pray that the world is turning around little by little in positive directions. I know there's a lot of horrible things going on in this universe, but hopefully the pandemic will start tailing off and We'll be getting back to the lives that we remember so positively. I just want to let you know I'm so grateful for all of you. I'll never stop saying that. Thank you for making this podcast what it is today. And what can I say? You guys are so supportive and it's incredible. I love the messages. Keep them coming. You can do so at Barry Katz at Twitter or Instagram or at barrycats.com. We have a great show for you today with Mike Rowe. This is the first of two parts, and you're really going to enjoy him a lot. He's an incredible, incredible person in this business who's done everything. And he has a new recently published memoir entitled It's a Funny Thing, How the Professional Comedy Business Made Me Fat and Bald. You're really going to like it so much. So many recommendations on the cover of the book from so many of the greatest comedians in the world endorsing it and people in the comedy business. Truly, truly wonderful. And you're really going to love this show a lot. So without further ado, let's introduce him and get some popcorn and let's get started. Mike Rowe is an Emmy Award-winning comedy writer, producer, and director. As a teenager, he started as a stand-up comedian in New York City, where he performed at such notable clubs as The Improv, The Comedy Cellar, and Carolines. 
From there, he landed a job writing jokes for SNL's Weekend Update and sketches for shows on MTV, A&E, and Comedy Central. This soon brought him to Hollywood, where he wrote on a comedy sketch show starring Martin Short. After that, he started this sitcom writing career, where he wrote and produced shows for such stars as George Clooney, Ted Danson, and Eddie Murphy on his animated show The PJs. This launched his animation career as a writer and producer on such monster hit series as Brickleberry, Futurama, and the juggernaut Family Guy. His more recent shows on Netflix include The Trailer Park Boys, where he was nominated for two Gemini Awards, and this month premiering its new season, Paradise PD. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, not the micro from Dirty Jobs. Much respect and admiration and love for this guy. Please welcome, what an honor, Mike Rowe. Thank you. Please don't rush to the couch. We don't have a lot of room, but thank you for having me. It's good to be had. I have so many questions to ask you, but the first question I have for you is you've always been the kind of guy who I could just say anything to and there would be a joke written for it in seconds. Oh. Like, in seconds, I could just say to you, Hey, Mike, it's great to see you. I'm, I'm sorry I was late today. And you would say something. Well, it's good to see you're back in men's clothing. Yeah, so there would be always something, right? Or I'd say, let me figure out how I'm dressed here uh, for you here. And you'd say... Yeah, um, in a hurry? <laughs> I don't know. Was it laundry there, day? <laughs> there'd always be something. No, that's I'd hold on to it. It'd be in style again. But... <laughs> So I'm just no, wondering, it's like, good. maybe it comes in your size. You can find out when you're out and shopping. How old were you when you knew you had that skill? Um, that's a good question. I, I was probably like 13 or something. You know, uh, it actually started. I, the, there was like sort of this power in comedy, and I learned I could do all these crazy vocal impressions as a little kid. Uh, including a loud siren, which I really can't do anymore because my voice has changed in an octave. And, but I used to do this loud siren, and it was so loud that I'd hang out a street corner with friends, and I would do it so loud that cars would pull over, thinking there's an emergency vehicle. So I was like... Now, did it bother you that uh, Michael Lin Winslow passed you in the business? Uh, it's funny, you know, they... For a second, they thought of teaming me up with him. They I, they had me audition for a police academy movie with him. And for you doing the siren. Yeah, and I did. I do all these other stupid noises. They, you know, which don't make any sense right now if I don't have a microphone. But, um, yeah, and I, I actually opened for Michael Michael Winslow a few times too, which didn't make sense. Listen, don't it, brag. It, I know, I'm a name dropper, Michael Winslow. Um. So yeah, yeah. It. Um, I think the first thing that really made me laugh was were the Marx Brothers and especially Groucho. So I think my whole the whole time I was thirteen, I was walking around the neighborhood with my friends, walking and talking like Groucho Marx. I was a I was a weird kid. Um, and then uh, and then I just started to. Uh, it's weird because my dad and I bonded through watching comedians, old-time comedians on TV, just my dad and I on the couch laughing. But they weren't old-time at the time. No, they were, you know. 
Um, so do you remember the first comedian that you saw with your dad next to you? Uh... Charlie Callis. Charlie Callis. Now, for the audience that doesn't know, Charlie Callis, the one that I remember, was very physically animated, used his eyes and his mouth very, like almost Commedia dell'arte, if that's how you pronounce it. Remember the old masks that they used to wear? He didn't wear masks, but, you know, the old kind of art where they put the masks on, you could only see the eyes and the mouth. But he would, Charlie Callis would take his cheeks and shake them and... And he would do his, he would and just make these noises. And there's a, he did a whole routine where he's like shooting, he's hunting, but he's, his whole body moves like this. And my dad and I are hysterical. You're laughing. You don't even know what's happening. You can't imagine this guy writing this on a paper. Okay, here, okay, when I say this word, then I'm going to go, and then when I do this, that's when I'm going to clock my head this way. And when I do this, I'm going to take my cheek and go like this, like how... I bet it was, you know, he probably did it a thousand times, and at one point it was just like he didn't have to even think about it, you know. It probably just kind of, it started probably just, but it was like he knew the joke. He knew the story. And as he kind of kept telling it over and over, and this is, I'm just imagining this, but he would just start to figure out where the best places to put the sounds are. And then it just kept building, I guess. When I started actually being in the comedy business, one of the first things I thought to myself was, believe it or not, how did Charlie Callis do an hour like that? Like, how could you watch an hour of that and and still stay with it? But obviously, he did it. Um, there's uh, There was an awful Jerry Lewis talk show, uh, mid-80s, early 80s, Charlie Callis was the Ed McMahon of the Jerry Lewis show. So Charlie Callis would start every night, come out to kind of talk, to intro Jerry. And the intro was like, here's a guy, who gonna, he has a thing, and just keep going. But apparently the setup was, you have to keep going until Jerry gives you a cue to stop. So there were times he's like going, he's into his like fifth minute of like, and then he gets the back of his mind, he's like, come on, man, let me off the hook. And then Jerry goes, okay. And then he goes, Jerry Lewis. And so Charlie was the first, and then who were some of the others that you watched with your dad? Well, definitely Henny Youngman. Uh, Henny Youngman became like the fabric, parts of the fabric of our family. Um, and Henny always performed with the violin? Yes, and Henny Youngman was the king of the one-liners. Uh, I, I, I told my, uh, my wife, said, let's go somewhere I've never been before, and I said, how about the kitchen? <laughs> um, so... I mean, since since I was a kid, so Henny Youngman was a part of the... There was a time when I was a kid and I didn't want to go to school, so I'm pretending I'm sick. And my dad is, like, playing into it. And he goes... At one point, he actually goes, does it hurt when you go like this? And I go, yeah. He goes, don't go like that. <laughs> so uh, on my dad's 60th birthday, I hired Henny Youngman to show up at his party. Uh, and this is in a little town in Connecticut, you know, where, where if you see the local weatherman, it's like, oh, there's a celebrity. But in my dad's big finished off basement with like 80, you know, members of the family as friends since childhood. And he, it's a surprise. He doesn't know Henny Youngman's going to show up in his house. And, you know, what, I, what, what year was this? This was early 90s. Uh, 
So, you know, I get up and there's, there was a DJ, so there's a sound system and the whole thing set up. And I get up and my dad's like, oh shit, my son's going to do jokes and bomb in front of everybody I know. But I just, I said, I got a special guest from New York, Henny Youngman. And my dad is like, well, what is one of his friends going to, you know, he didn't believe it. Then coming down the stairs, the loud jacket, the violin, Henny Youngman shows up in the, goes into the middle of the room and has at it. And my dad, like, it's like if the Who showed up at one of our parties to my dad. You know, he just, like, jumped out of his chair and spun around. It's like, holy shit. And Honey Youngman was this close to him and doing the thing. And I got a son, 15-year-old, 16, if I let him. You know, my dad was heckling and laughing. And Henny uh, hung out with everybody and signed joke books. And, it, you know, he talked about it for the rest of his life. And then he and Henny, like, became friends. they call each other and send letters and it was crazy in fact now um when uh when my dad was sick and he was on his deathbed and um so his wife at the time you know it was my last night alone with my dad and my his wife said uh you know can you sit with your dad and read the scriptures and i'm like okay and she leaves the room and i dial up on my phone so many youngman jokes so i'm sitting at my dad's deathbed I'm like you know uh rich kid sits on santa's lap and says santa what do you need you know, I just did that, reeled those off for 10 minutes. And my dad, you know, that was like my last big communication with my dad. And was your dad conscious at the time? And he... Yeah, yeah. It was really like the last few hours of his, you know, ability to register that stuff. It was also kind of bittersweet in a way, too, because um, <clears throat> literally the next week, uh, I was nominated for the Emmy for Futurama and won the Emmy. So I, I missed it by a few days of, you know, getting my dad to see that. Because to me, like an Emmy, that's sort of more of what it's about, like kind of for your parents. And I mean, I don't know what it means in the industry. It's kind of like, you know, whatever. But so that that would have been like the Super Bowl ring, you know, for my dad to see that happen. But well, the Super Bowl ring for your dad was having you sit next to him and read the Henny Youngman jokes. Yeah, that's true. Not a piece of metal. Mm. I think your dad knew how great you were and how award-worthy you were. I think he he even kind of lived vicariously through me. I mean, if he if he could have, he would like to have been in stand-up. And I think kind of that's where I got it from, you know, hanging out at his bar and seeing that camaraderie of those guys making each other laugh, and especially my dad, you know. So, uh, so he'd always tell corny jokes, you know. So amazing, the Henny Youngman story. And... So Henny came down with no sound system, nothing, just no. standing in the middle of the room. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can imagine that people were just like, I mean, they were perfectly quiet waiting to, you know, they're not, nobody's going to talk and it's Henny Youngman showing up at someone's house, you know. You're a good man. Mm -hmm. That's and, incredible. I mean, I just, I'm, I guess that dwarfs me getting Dustin Diamond for my mom's birthday. <laughs> I'll get him for my mom's birthday. So take me way, way back. You grow up in what town? Waterbury, Connecticut. Waterbury, Connecticut. I know it well. I'm from Long Meadow. Okay. And so it's like a middle class, upper middle class neighborhood. Middle. I'm probably, I was probably in the lower middle of the city. And your dad did what for a living and your mom did what? My mom raised me and my two sisters. But my dad, um, my dad worked in a factory for a while. He took a while for him to find what he liked, but he had that bar downtown and he had that for probably six years um 
I think the bar to him, like he always saw himself as kind of an entrepreneur in a way. So he wanted this place to be kind of the the meeting place of, you know, the Waterbury people. But why was, only six years? Because it was rough. It was a rough place. I mean, I hung out there as a kid and, and there's pimps and alcoholics and, and, you know, there's fights all the time. In Waterbury? Yeah. This was downtown Waterbury. Even in, even in this is late 60s, early 70s. Uh, my dad had a stripper in the bar, and you know, I'm he a, had a stripper pole in the bar. It wasn't a pole. In fact, you know, it was a weird thing. You know, as a kid, I knew about the stripper, but my dad would just pull me out of the and and we'd go home before the stripper would come out, right? Because he didn't want the son to be there. So, one stripper, one stripper. Um, Am and I missing something? Have you ever known of any place in the history of the world that had one stripper? Uh, well, I had one in my office yesterday, <laughs> but that's another... Anyway, gang. Um, but, uh, but as a kid, like, I, I'm... It's it like the stripper comes on at 9 o'clock, right? And usually I'm, my dad pulls me out of there. And then I see the, you know, the Schaefer beer clock, you know, ticking closer to 9. I'm like... What's going on? Where's my dad? What's happening? You know, and then I'm like sort of hiding partway, you know, behind the ice machine. Like this, this might happen. You know, I'm a kid. I'm going like, what, what, what does the stripper do? Does is it live sex? Does she read poetry? What you know? I'm like, and then the, some guy comes up and and feeds quarters into the jukebox and cranks it up. And there was you know the 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 spotlight was like I think my dad took it from our aluminum Christmas tree. You know this wheel thing and. Just this little shitty stand, and this girl, and it's you know this nineteen sixty nine kind of go go dancer with you know sequin bikini and white go go boots, and then she starts like dancing, and I'm like, my, I, I think I, I went through puberty at that moment. I think my voice changed because <laughs> I'm like, like it's just my first sexual experience, I guess, and I'm, and then my dad had been downstairs taking inventory, or whatever, and he had forgotten, and then he came up and realized what happened, and he just yanked me like like a fireman pulling a kid out of a house. He just <laughs> ran me out of there. And, and you know, and my dad would, I would always get in these kind of situations at the bar with my dad. Like one night a guy took a shot in the, at someone in the bar. And and then on those ride homes with my dad, I always wondered, you know, like, is there going to be that sort of ethereal moment or explanation of like, what, why is he exposing me to this stuff? And he would just be more like, eh, don't tell your mother. <laughs> I mean, that's the... And it, but your mom and dad were together. They were married. They never got divorced. No, they got divorced when I was right when I moved to New York to do stand up at eighteen. Got it. Yeah. So how do you feel about that? Um, it, I'm sure it's different when you're ready to leave the house. Anyway, it's kind of different. You know, the you're splitting. You're splitting from your, your family anyway. So, and it was always kind of a stressful house. You know, it was again part of the reason I think I got into comedy because. The family found calm while, like, gathered on a TV watching sitcoms. You know, that was like a family moment of calm, or calm with my dad watching comedians. So that I'm sure the psychology of it became, you know, a safety zone. You know, um, so yeah, so the, it, it was stressful. So it, it was for the better. You know, I thought. And so you had that inspiration of those moments with the old time comedians. You go to college, and where do you go to college in New York? I don't go to college. 
and I didn't, I didn't go. I was, I was in fact deemed by I don't know who like I wasn't smart enough. I was like not college material. So you left the house at eighteen. You moved to New York with how much money, and where'd you get the money to go? I had five hundred dollars. Um, I had passed auditions at the Improv. I won a stand-up comics contest in Hartford, Connecticut, while I was still living at home. While you were a teenager in high school. Yeah, and the, and the, wait, time out here. So. How do you get to the point where you're watching television with your dad and you're doing stand-up comedy competitions? It, you know, it, it's, it segued kind of naturally. So then I kind of gravitated. I found comedy records like Carlin and Richard Pryor and stuff like that. And then around that time, the hipper comics started to emerge. Uh, Norm Crosby's Comedy Shop. Norm Crosby was considered a hipper comic? He was the host, but he brought on Elaine Boozler, Leno, you know. It was kind of fun, too, because he also brought in some of the old-timers, but these new guys, you know, George Miller and stuff like this. So I'm like, holy shit, that's interesting to me. You know, so I'm, so I'm getting hipper to the younger stuff. Whose style did you say, when I start doing stand-up, I'd like to have that kind of style? It's interesting. I think I took from everyone because uh, I think of all the stand-up specials that were around then. The first Robin Williams one, uh, Robert Klein, uh, even Elaine Boozler. You know, they they were having the first hour-long specials, and I would watch them over and over. Now, Robert Klein, to any New York comic at that time, was, I mean, he was like a deity. Yes. Um, it's funny when I look back at those specials that I used to watch then I hear some of myself in every one of them I hear that like through osmosis or whatever I picked up the timing and the rhythm of it it was weird it's like wow that's why I phrase things that way that's why I, that's where that came from okay so your first time ever on stage how old are you where is it uh junior year high school talent show stand-up first time in the auditorium and do you write your own stuff or you do somebody else's routine i did half and half i did of all things freddie prince i i was into freddie prince or right? the taco don't leave home without it or the american express commercial as the taco or something oh, was else. that what did he do that yeah something like that well it's weird because i i was doing you know jokes about being puerto rican which <laughs> how'd but, that go over well, it went good. It went really good because part of it was like I've been I was so immersed into stand up that uh, I, I kind of had a natural capacity to do it. I was if I, I was sort of comfortable, you know, so it went over good. It was and I did like a Carson impression and some jokes that I wrote. I remember one was uh, that was kind of almost like a real joke. I said, my mom and I was at a technical high school. So I said, my mom and dad wanted me to go to a technical high school so they'd know what kind of work I'd be out of. <laughs> huh. That's a decent joke. Um, so I, I, so the bug bit. I mean, you know what I mean? It's the comics talk about it all the time. So you go on the talent show. Are you the only comedian on the talent show? Yeah. What happens? Uh, first of all, my mom was really scared because um, I'm I'm basically shy and quiet really and especially around the house so my mom just thought this is gonna be horrible she didn't invite any friends or anything you know it was just gonna be a crash and burn and and she was so surprised like who is who is that guy that's not my son 
my son doesn't talk like that. It's you like to see me on some level at least have command of the stage and stuff like that. She's like, she was just so zero being the shittiest you could have possibly done and a hundred being the best. What do you think you did that night the first time you went up? It could be close to seventy. Awesome, that's pretty good. Which joke went over the best? Boy, I hate to say how long ago that was. Forty something years ago. Uh, let me think about this in case there is something. I did stuff. a high school talent show with your buddy Mark Cohen. Oh yeah, at Longmeadow, Massachusetts. Did we you... both did stand up. Oh okay, he didn't work as a team. No, no, he did. He did stand up on his own. I remember one of his first jokes. The New York Times said IBM is experiencing a toilet paper shortage. Their new slogan is IBM. Do you? I remember that was one of his first jokes. <laughs> and I did a Bob Newhart routine, the driving instructor. Oh, my God. How did that go? Killed. Did, did obviously you didn't preface it and say Yes, did I did. Oh, you said it's Bob Newhart? Yes. Oh, wow. I did. And then when I went to New York, I did an open mic night at a place and did the same thing. It killed. And the guy took me off stage and he said, listen, I've got some advice for you. Listen, when you're doing somebody else's bit, don't mention whose bit it is. Just take the fucking bit. And that's when I started writing my own stuff as a comic. And so you perform there, and then you go to Hartford. You perform there. Then you go to New York with $500. How do you survive with $500 in New York? Well, uh, at 18. The, first of all, the prize for, the, for winning was you, they took you to dinner in Manhattan, and then you got to audition at the Improv. That was part of the prize. So then I so you won. I won that night, and uh, and I passed auditions at the Improv. They they it was your first night you passed the audition. Now, yeah, yeah. Uh, just so the audience knows, back when Mike and I were in New York City, the Improv. If you've ever seen that famous John Lennon photo at Forty Fourth and Ninth, it's was right there. It was an old kind of like dingy kind of club where the stage was sort of next to an exit door that went out to 44th Street, and some of the greatest comedians went on there, but it was a real, real crazy formatted kind of club, the way it was laid out. There was a hierarchy, you had to earn your way up, and I didn't even know that when I got there. In fact, what it was much more exciting to me too, because you know, when I was still living at home, the, when Mike Douglas would come on in the afternoon and he had a guest host for the week, and Freddie Prinze was the guest host. And we were kind of the same age, you know, and so I'm looking at like, he's got his own sitcom and look, he's playing the drums and he's behind the scenes of the making of a sitcom. And like, I'm getting sucked into this world. And then he started talking about the improv. And then he showed, uh, he showed a clip of the place, you know, the brick wall and then montage of comedians. And I'm like the improv. In fact, just before that, when I, when I, I would go around to bars around my, city before the boom hey everybody i hope you're enjoying this episode as much as i am if you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business that's why i'm offering you my blueprint for success a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, 
and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. And I mean, there were, this is where, you know, there were not comedy clubs in every building in every town that people didn't have that. But I would walk in a bar and if there's music, I would go to the manager. When they're on a break, can I just go up and tell jokes? And, uh, and I would just go up like I just was that hungry. So I, one place there was this Italian singer that night at the place. And it was Nick Capallo who did the Woody Allen movie. So he's from my hometown. So he was the first actually to alert me to go, you know, he said, uh, I think you're ready. You There's this club in New York. I play in New York once in a while, you know, about the improv. So anyways, it's, everybody's talking about the improv, the improv. And then suddenly, like, there's this contest. You And then you get to audition at the improv. So it would just be built up. And it was this crazy, you know, so it was so exciting. For and me. tell our audience about how it was auditioning there where Silver Friedman, Bud's ex-wife, would sit in that booth or chair with that hat that she used to wear what? and 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 what it was like and tell the audience who went on the night that you did that um now when i auditioned silver had not taken over the club yet she was literally weeks away from that um but i'll tell you who was on i remember overton really wrong, young rick overton who got a standing ovation i remember a standing ovation at the improv you could count standing ovations in a New York comedy club, maybe one in 10,000 performances. Mm -hmm. It never happened. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, and I was new, so I figured like, okay, he got, he's good. He got a standing, you know, I didn't know how rare that was. So I got to see that. And I never saw it again. I never saw it again. Yeah. In any of those clubs. Uh, there was a very young Fred Stoller. He was, I think my same age. He was 17, 18. So funny. Uh, do you remember Richie Morris? He did a whole routine about uh, being at a wedding and what goes on at the wedding. But he was doing this really obscure thing where he had like plastic bags and Ziplocs on his hands and on top of his head and on his feet. And then he was doing like a weird fashion show. He would like catwalk to the front of the stage and pose and he'd just go, you like? <laughs> and then he rearranged them and come back and you like? And then like the audience didn't like but and I put it <laughs> and the, he went on after him well the, you know the thing about those days and this is early 70s early 80s every single act was very very different you know it was everyone had a kind of an original take um mark wiener you remember yes had the wiener the wienerettes homemade puppets um uh, um Brogan was still there, Jimmy Brogan. Jimmy Brogan did mostly all crowd work. Yeah. Uh, Andy Kaufman. Never heard of him. Uh, so, in fact, after I had been there for a while in the early 80s, Andy Kaufman decided to hang out again at, at the club. So I got to know him a little bit, and I got to uh, I got to referee a wrestling match in the improv on that tiny stage. Um, really? Yeah. Um he, I, I kind of earned his trust a little bit because I also played the drums for him one night when he did Elvis. 
so uh, so he asked me, you know, he said, I'm going to get a woman from the audience. It's going to be a real woman. And I'm going to offer her $1,000 if she can pin me down. So you just be the referee and see if she can. This was the first time he tried that bit. No, it wasn't the first time. Okay. He, he already been kind of known a, a okay. little bit of the All wrestling right. So he offers her $1,000. And this woman comes up, this scrappy little, it's like a real audience member. And I'm on stage, and it's about the size of this couch, that improv stage. And so it's crazy. And he's strutting, you know, doing, you should be home cooking and cleaning. The lady should be taking care of their husband, you know. And it, the women in the audience were just getting riled up. I mean, they were like forming a wall up at the end <laughs> of the stage wanting to kill him. And then I'm, it's getting, you know, it's getting a little scary because he's just flipping her around like a rag doll. Like, he, what, you, you're going to break her neck or, you know. So I finally called it. I was, I don't even know if it looked close enough, but I was like, I got to call this because you got women screaming that want to kill him. You're going to like break this woman's neck. And then I call the fight and um but the weird thing is like the women the women uh who wanted to kill him would go to the bar and then they like would want to go home with him it was a weird magical weird power that that had so did he ever lose the thousand uh not at the improv he because he did wrestle there a few times but I, I don't know i think that was a standing thing he did at all the clubs do you think if Andy Kaufman were alive today, he would be canceled? Um, if he were alive to the, today, though, he is creative enough. He is creative enough to try to figure out a different, weird thing to do. You know what I mean? Um, but he was an inspiration to me at the Improv because it just started to get me to think outside the box. And I started thinking of the club as kind of a, the whole club is a canvas in a way. So I would start to do these weird things like uh, I found a clipboard at the bar, you know. So in the middle of someone's set, I would just walk in with a clipboard and a pen and look at the plumbing and stuff and make notes. Just like stealing focus, you know. And then uh, I remember one night I was MC and Ray Romano, before he was famous, but he was part of our class of comics but i just did a thing like i said i'm going to seat you in the audience and then i'm going to introduce you as a special guest and just take a bow after i do it and i just we have a special guest in the audience from broadway fresh off uh, the, the play and i made up a stupid play and then i made up a stupid name billy uh, billy diller and, he, and the spotlight swings over and he takes a bow and then like two acts later i see him on another side of the room <laughs> and i go we got another guest here tonight <laughs> Uh, he's a, he came in from Hollywood. He has a sitcom coming out this fall, and I made up a stupid sitcom name, another fake name. Spotlight swings over, and he does his showbiz bow. <laughs> so I kept doing that all night, and just. And so, what was your first big break in comedy where you actually got on television or a nice paying job or something happening? after you sludging it out in New York and stand-up, and how long did it take you to get that first big break? Uh, I don't know if you call this a break, but I this was something that, at least to my family... You're talking about this podcast? Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm going to... In fact, when I get home, I'm going to upload it and throw it in the trash. Anyway, tonight, uh, when I, I did Star Search in 1986, and if nothing else, like family and my parents saw that so to them that was sort of like making it so you, you know? go on who you compete against on star search your first time rich jenny 
Richard Jenny did Star Search. Yes. And who won that first one? Rich Jenny was the reigning champ after winning one. So Rich Jenny was nervous, of course. He, um, he and I, the day before, did a, a TV show in New York called Bill Boggs Comedy Tonight. Of course. We were on the same show. And then we're flying the next day together to do Star Search. Um, and on Comedy Tonight, uh, they saw me do this David Brenner impression at the improv. And they wanted me to do it as a cold open. And the the bit is sort of about, like, his lame observations, right? And you ever notice uh, planes go up and then they come down again? Isn't that weird? But the, the punchline was, you ever notice this? You ever notice I'm not funny? <laughs> So I'm like saying to them, like, I, I don't want to be on TV and saying David Brenner is not funny. I mean, that's you can open a show and I, I'm, I haven't. He goes, no, come on, just do. And they they kind of bullied me into doing it, and, and then I'm on the plane the next day where it's Jenny, and I'm sort of a little bit emotional about it and explaining it to him, and like, well, isn't it weird? What's he gonna find out? Is it? And then comics handled the way they handle it, where Jenny just started doing the impression with me. So literally the whole flight. You ever notice the peanuts are weird? That's no, it's weird idiots you know and then like we're at dinner that night in la and we're just hey waitress what are they waiting for isn't it you know so the next day we go to the run through and they're kind of like you know going over the thing the dancers beer 10 and the thing and uh and tonight the uh on tonight's show the comedians will be introduced by david brenner <laughs> and rich jenny and I looked at each other and then we just started laughing so hard i mean we literally rolled into a ball and fell on the floor laughing and we so the the producer's like well, what's going on what's and we're trying to I'm like that's never mind it's that we like Brenner's and then so this little run through we had to kind of get to the mic and just do a sound check and stuff like that and they asked us about the Brenner thing and they said well Rich and I had just been doing this Brenner impression and we just got wrapped up and caught in it so it was just weird coincidence it was funny to us so we do the show that night and we're like Brenner's gonna be here and and uh, and it was great and exciting, and, and then it's our time to go up, and Brenner comes on and talks to Ed, and then at the end of it, Ed says, well, you're going to like tonight's comics, because they both do an impression of you. <laughs> and we're looking and go, what is he talking about? What is and then they're like introducing Rich, and he's like, you know, like uh, being pushed off the boat into the, <laughs> you know, like, I don't uh, think. So anyway, he, he didn't address it, and nothing came up, and then I came out, and I won, Perfect score, by the way, for anybody who remembers Star Search and what a perfect score. Four means. stars. Four stars. But then I had to walk and and talk to Ed, and, I, and then Brenner's there. And I'm like, well, what's going to And then Ed does it, four winner, 4.0. Uh, and Mike, before you go, and I go, oh, boy. Can you do an impression of uh, David Brenner? Like, and my brain is going like, oh, my, all my jokes are about him being lame. I have no, and I'm like frozen. I'm like, mm, mm, and Brenner's looking at me and I'm like, uh, and I just spit something. You know, those planes are weird or something. And then Brenner's like, and then I like walked off stage before I was supposed to. And I've screwed up the commercial break and then the whole thing. But um, it was just such a weird, long story. And then you went on the next time on Star Search to defend your title. And what, who did you go up against? Uh, Schimmel. Robert Schimmel. Mm -hmm. uh, there's another story with Schimmel, and this is confirmed because Schimmel told this story on Stern. 
he too knew I was up against, he was up against the, the, the sound, the noisemaker guy. Like, holy shit, what am I? So I swear to you, he psyched me out because you had to be in the studio all day from 10 in the morning till, and he would always come up to me and he'd have a picture of his kid in the hospital bed. And he's just like, I just hope I win tonight. Because uh, my kid is, uh... And his kid was really sick, though. That's the, even the crazier part. Um, and then he, and literally like probably eight times. Yeah, I, I, um, I talked to my wife and we're getting some blood results. But, it, you know, I'm like, Christ. And uh, I went up that night. And in fact, Sherman Hemsley was the uh, the, co the guest who introduced the comics. And I saw him talking to Shemmel. He's like, what the fuck you doing here, man? You don't got you got any clean jokes, man? What are you doing? He's like, I know, I know. Anyway, so I went out and then I started and did my first joke and then I kind of went blank for one eighth of a second, but enough to like, oh, you know, like the ship started rocking and it it didn't go great. But I'm thinking like, well, Schimmel doesn't have any material, maybe this. And then he did like stuff you never heard him do, like you know, stuff about. Uh, airplanes and the price is right and just all the tropes of like stand-up and i'm like what the so he won he beat me right so that the end of the night i saw like all these comedians circle around him it was like mario cantone and provenza and max alexander they all gave him pieces of their act so he can do the star search set wow so if nothing else you know you need a team of people to take down Mike Rowe, Mike, <laughs> Mike 4.0 Rowe. The other Mike Rowe. That's right. All right. So tell our audience what it takes to make the transition between being a stand-up and making money as a stand-up in the clubs and, and make that jump to being a writer. Like, obviously, you're writing comedy for your act, but writing scripts and writing jokes and scripts and breaking story and then submitting your material and doing interviews to get a job on a show which the minimum writer salary even back then was probably three thousand a week now it's like forty two hundred a week uh, so how did you make that jump and what inspired you to make the jump from being a stand-up to being a writer well, it's interesting when... Do I always start my story with it's interesting? I think they'll be the judge of that. But <clears throat> when I was doing stand-up, when I was around 25 or so, I started to realize I don't have the fire in me to become like Robert Klein. I'm not going to be George Carlin. I, I knew that early on. Because it felt like it wasn't a fight I wanted to fight. And I had been writing along the way. I've been writing jokes for Rodney Dangerfield and Rip Taylor, for anybody who knows Rip Taylor. So Rodney came to you and said, hey, kid, will you write me some jokes? Or did you go up to him? Or how did that work? Here's how it worked. Rip Taylor was the guy with the bag and the confetti and yeah. everything. Hello. Can you hear me? Hello. With the mustache like uh -huh. this. Uh, the joke I wrote for Rip Taylor was, I'm reading a good book, The History of Crazy Glue. I can't put it down. Hello. <laughs> it was those kind of jokes. Here's the Rodney Dangerfield story. I'm 17, right? And I love comics. And I'm recording comics uh, on The Tonight Show and, and, like, picking the jokes apart and trying to figure out how they work. And, you know, I'm telling my friends, uh, you know, jokes, uh, Rodney jokes about 
being a, a, a having a wife and a lawyer and like I'm just but I'm trying these jokes out I'm trying to understand them and then one night Rodney's on a tonight show Carson gets him to be himself for a second and kind of open up and he talks about how he was selling aluminum siding at one point and his career wasn't going well he went by the name of Jack Roy as a stand-up yes he did and then he had his club in Manhattan he had danger fields so my comedy head was like if I wrote some jokes and sent them to Jack Roy at Dangerfields, I bet that would get his attention. And I'm fucking 17. Got it. So when you're 17, what year was that? 77, 76? 77. So he became Rodney about nine years earlier. I know he did a little thing on the Ed Sullivan show. And then a great thing for the audience to watch, if you can YouTube it, is him and Jackie Gleason. It's one of his first real long stand-ups on television when i say long it's like eight and a half minutes long and you can see the transition mm -hmm. that he made from being jack roy to rodney because he's doing the one-liners doesn't really have the bright tie doesn't really have the handkerchief isn't doing all the motions and isn't taking the handkerchief and he closes off the set with a story it's the story about how Sugu, the person came to his door to try to get a dollar so Sugu can go to school for a year and Sugu can can have food for uh, four years and Sugu's family can have their house. And he thought to himself, listen, I'll give you the dollar if you can teach my wife how to stretch a buck that far. <laughs> you know, something like that. But right. he did the story and it was like the transition. Right. So tell me how you got involved with Rod and you sent him for Jack Roy. How I mean, many, I'm, I'm 17. How many jokes on the page? I probably sent, I probably sent a dozen jokes, let's say. Typed out on a typewriter? In fact, in my book, you'll see, I, I still have the first typed draft of it on my mom's typewriter. Um, so, uh, I, I, the jokes were like, I can't, I'm trying to think of one. I, I, uh, I knew my wedding wasn't going to last for the wedding march. They played taps. <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, that's kind of the cool thing about being a kid and having that innocence. It's like, oh well, yeah, you just send jokes. So you so mailed it to Dangerfield. I sent them to Jack Roy at Dangerfields. What happened? Well, a couple of weeks go by and I figure that's, well, that's, you know, I just, it's worth a swing. And then one night at like seven o'clock at night, the phone rings and my mom up at the top of the stairs, Mike, there's a Rodney on the phone for you. <laughs> I'm like, what is, what is, and I'm like, pick up the phone. This is how long ago it was. It's this phone. <laughs> yeah, hello, hello. Hey, Mike, it's Rodney. How you doing? You okay? You all right? How you doing? Like, well, hey, hey, yeah. I got your jokes. You know, they're pretty good. You know, they're all right. You know, you're a funny kid, you know? And I'm like, yeah, you like them? Yeah, they're not for me though. They're not my jokes, you know. But they're good, you know. So he kept me on the phone for like 15 minutes, and he's and I said, yeah, I want to do stand up. He goes, oh, and he's naming all the you know the showcase clubs, and but don't come to my club. It's no good, you know. And then like a, a week later, a handwritten letter shows up from him. Like, it's if you're gonna do stand up, it's gonna take eight years before you know if you're funny or not. And um, so I felt like I had this endorsement from Rodney Dangerfield. So that's, you know, that's another boost of like, maybe, uh, I guess, I, you know. Um, Do you still have the letter? It's in the book. Awesome. See, I keep everything. So then when I moved to New York, eventually, then I, I kind of got in touch with him again. I didn't even remind him like with that phone call. But, uh, you know, if you can call Rodney back then and say, I got jokes, he'll he'll get on the phone. He said, come down to my club. Let me know. Let's show what you got. And in truth, I didn't really have them. I just wanted to see if he'd be interested in them. So I felt like, oh, thank you. man, I started writing jokes. So I get there. And Ronnie had a finished off, uh, uh, like this dark, 
basement dressing room. And in the middle of the day, he has his robe on, you know, and he's pacing. And I'm, you know, reading my, um, uh, my wife is ugly. Um, uh. And then he finally like, stops and acknowledges it. And I'm like, oh, man, it finally hit something. And he turns around and he starts peeing in the sink. <laughs> you know, they don't give me a toilet down here. I got to piss in the sink, you know. <laughs> okay, I got more jokes. Uh. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Um, Did he like any of the new jokes? You know, I think he bought one. You know, I was trying to figure out. How much did he pay for jokes 50, back then? 50 bucks. Rip Taylor was 50 bucks. Now, tell me, like, if you had to look at Rodney Dangerfield's first album or listen to it, not that you know for a fact, but if you were a betting man, how much of the jokes would you say were written by other comedians that gave them to him and how many were written by him? That's a good question. He hung out with a couple really funny guys. Joe Ansis. I forget who else, but... I Harry think, Basil? No, this was, this was way before that. Okay. Joe Ansis was like friends with Lenny Bruce and that sort yeah. of thing. And Joe Ansis might have been the one to tell him, you know, I get no respect. Um... So he probably he probably wasn't taking it from stand-ups and outside sources, but I bet he had a couple of core people that gave him jokes. Like, I was always fascinated by Rodney because he could tell a story in five seconds. You know, five seconds, and he'd tell the joke that had a complete story in the joke. And I always get upset at people who tell me that he wasn't a storyteller, that he was just a, a joke teller, but each joke had that story. You right. could name anyone and they they just, you know, I went to the bartender, I said, surprise me, he pulled out a picture of my wife, it tells you that he's going to the bar, uh -huh. he's a drinker, and it says he's not paying attention to his wife because he's a drinker, and then the irony is the bartender is sleeping with his wife. It's it's a good example of the the economy of the words because there are so many comics will I guess it's out of insecurity where they'll over set up the joke and over explain it. It's you know, you know it, the, the commercials today are so weird. I mean I saw one the other day and if you've seen it you know it's just like, it's Rodney's almost like one three. There's like no two in the middle. You know it's and I agree. But then, some of the greatest comedians of our generation. 
are the exact opposite. Like, Chris Rock will repeat the setup twice. Sometimes he'll say it a third time before he says the line. And he gets it done that way. Like, and people hold on every word and they're waiting and it's like a, it's almost like a reset and a reset and you're, you're waiting so much, the rubber band is so pulled tight that when he delivers that punch, you, you really love it. I know, and Chris Rock at one point was sort of like, my act is still, I feel like I'm an amalgamation of all the people I admired. So he he just stopped doing stand-up. I mean, he, st he stopped doing all that material he had been doing and focused at least a year for that first special. And that's all he thought about. And just it was all about finding your voice. And that's what it was, just finding those rhythms. That, that's probably just part of his natural thing, I guess. And that's why it works. That's, I mean, I, I you know, again, part of like you're talking about the segue to writing and like, when I realized, like, I'm not going to be Robert Klein, I'm not going to be those guys, and then I started, I was writing anyway and was liking it, because I also thought, you know, I'm 25 and I hate going on the road now. What happens when I'm 50, you know? I'm going to be on cruise ships. I'm going to be, you know, working uh, chuckleberries and whatever, you know? I, I, so I, it was that at a young age, I, I started to make the transition. You know, it's, it's, you know, whenever you can kind of really listen to yourself and listen to you know what what's nagging at you what's what's guiding you to tune into that i think i was lucky to have that how fearful were you when you were going up for those first jobs what was the first job you auditioned for as a writer and tell our audience what the process was and then tell them how many times you tried out for writing gigs and didn't get them until you finally got your first one well um I was good friends with Bob Odenkirk when he was at SNL as a writer, and I hung out at the show a lot, and uh, and it was just exciting to me. And I, who was on the show when Bob was a writer? Well, I was writing jokes for Dennis Miller when he was doing the news, but it was Phil Hartman, Lovitz, uh, Jan Hooks, Kevin Nealon. Uh, it was that generation. <clears throat> but I just loved being on the floor during the shows and going backstage and watching everything happen because it was about like this is. This is where I'm going to end up. I'm going to be somewhere like this. So you're saying that was your first gig and you... The it wasn't, first gig that you ever went up for got involved and you didn't even audition. Well, that was just like... That was just freelance, right? Just writing those jokes. But Well, normally with that show, when you write for Update, you don't have to be in the office. You can write from home. Right. You can submit. Or back then, you had the facts. Right. The stuff. Right. Right. So I wasn't even like I wasn't even in the mix with the writers or anything like that. I was living almost vicariously of like I want to. I, I, I this is what I want. And while I was hanging out there, uh, Alan Zweibel started hanging around, and Alan Zweibel was one of the original writers. And we had this kind of kinship in a way because he loved the old school Catskill guys, and he wrote jokes for them, and we kind of got to know each other. And during this time, when you when you want to write and you feel like you want to write, then you can't help yourself and you keep writing, right? You just you just find yourself writing like a like a junkie. You got what can I write today? What I, so I was writing spec scripts, and spec scripts are the way the gateway into getting the job. Tell our audience the definition of a spec script. On speculation, so you you you're writing scripts for no money, but you're writing them at that stage. You're writing them to learn. You know, you're trying to figure it out. You're trying to, you know. So I wrote 
my favorite show at the time was New Heart. So I wrote a couple of those, just like I have to figure it out. And It's Gary Shandling Show was on then. And that's before Larry Sanders. It's a great, you know, weird half hour sitcom where Shandling would turn to the camera. It's all this meta, you know, and I love the show so much. And I wrote like three specs of those. And uh, uh, Do you have an agent or are you? No, nothing. So you're alone, yeah. nobody, no manager, no agent. How old are you then? Um, 23, something like that. So you're 23, you write six spec scripts, not one or two, you write six. Right, I mean, that's, you You have to. You ha If you're not doing that, again, you're in trouble, I feel like. If you're not that obsessed with it, if you're not that curious about figuring it out, it's, you know, you know, you, you it, people write one script and they think that's going to, you know. The, so the way I got in, I, I had not seen Alan Sorry Bell in a long time. And I, uh, I mean, a couple months. And I was walking at night through Times Square. And I happened to have on a Saturday Night Live sweatshirt because I got it for free. Or maybe I because I got one joke on every two weeks, I thought I was like a writer on the show. And as I'm walking up towards... Uh, my apartment up in the 50s the guy walks by and goes hey nice shirt and it's alan zoy bell and he's like well, what have you been up to and i go well i've been writing all these spec scripts and he goes what do you would you write and i go well it's gary Shanling's show and i knew it's why bell co-created the show i mean what weird kismet is that and he goes so you know what send me your best one i can't promise you anything but you know at least you'll hear from me and see, you get my opinion and then that's why Bell called me and he goes, These, I, this, is, I, I, this is a really good script. I want to send you to my uh, manager, um, uh, uh, Barry, uh, I can't remember his name. Barry, Barry Secunda. Secunda. Secunda read the script and then now all of a sudden I have a manager. And then Zwei Bell and I'm saying, oh, we got Zwei Bell. And so uh, he said, Zwei Bell said he has a new show and he wants you on staff. And it wasn't the Shanling show, but it was a new show. And it was a show about the Friars Club. And then, so that that was my first job. And that was my entree into Hollywood. And did they shoot a pilot? They shot six episodes. Oh, got it. Yeah. So I was actually out here for a little while already. So I, I was rolling. What was the minimum salary for a writer back then? Well, I was... Technically, a staff writer, they called it, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I think I brought home a thousand a week. Got it. So, after taxes, probably, you know. Right. So, and this was 88, 89, something like that. Got it. Um, but, you know, first of all, as a stand up, you know, I was, you were doing gigs for $10 and $50. And of course. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It's centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. 
his story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and it involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I've partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins, the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session, barrykbb.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard. And because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this. And I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels you pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. 
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.